Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. All right, and welcome back to Micromobility. Today with us, uh, as always, Horace, how are you going today, Horace? I'm great. Thanks, uh, Oliver. I am a little bit under the weather. I wouldn't say great. I would, I would say I'm, I'm good. Uh, <clears throat> I'm well. I'm well enough. Where are you? I just landed in San Francisco about 18 hours ago. I flew in from Helsinki via Paris, of all places. Not no, normally the way you'd go, but uh, you know, I ended up with a good discount rate there. Excellent. It was a strange trip because it took all 24 hours to make the whole th- the whole trip. So, it, and I I probably got a little bit sick from that. So anyway, but moving on. Oh, and are you? Are, is there any particular reason you're in San Francisco? Yes, actually, I'll be presenting at CalStart. CalStart is is I think is it titled something like CalStart 2030. Um, it's a conference in Sacramento, which is the capital of California, which I haven't been to before. I'd love to visit. And it's about an hour and a half uh, due uh, east from San Francisco here. And I will be on a panel session discussing micromobility, you know, in, in the context of the future of mobility in, in, in cities in California. So it's, it's a quite a good, interesting conversation. Lots of uh, interesting people showing up as well as my, as my co-panelists. So, so I'm really looking forward to that. And, and that's one event. And another is the Apple event, which is actually on the 25th. But we'll be speaking about that in a different podcast, which is, of course, The Critical Path with Judd. And, and so I'm actually recording that tomorrow. So yes, that's why I'm here. I'm on at least those two things, and a few other minor minor ones, but uh, yeah. Excellent. By the time this comes out, we, we will still be in the last uh, couple of days of the Kickstarter project for the book. Now, we've talked about this on previous episodes, but I thought maybe we could just also, do you want to give a short plug on, uh, on what the book is and, and why it matters? Yeah. Absolutely. As we speak, uh, we've got about 10 days left, I think, and we're at 93%. So I think only about $500 remains in our target. And so we're very happy to see that go over the line, hopefully within a day or so. And then once that's clearly greenlit, we will begin the editing and writing process and the assembling of all the material, also the diagrams. And we need to build uh, the poster, which will be a montage of many, many graphs. I've got a draft of that already. It's going to be a poster about four feet by three feet. Oh, wow. Very large. Yeah. And, and we're going maybe maybe a bit small. I, I don't recall exactly. Maybe it's a bit small than that, but it's it's poster sized. And it, it, my objective with that is to actually make it very rich and dense data so that you can sort of dwell and look at it and kind of also uh, draws you in to examine the data a bit more. It's not meant to be, you know, something uh, like a, a an abstract art or anything like that. Although it might look nice, I don't know. So that <laughs> needs to be done. <laughs> um, that needs to be done, and um, we need to. I guess you and I and and Judd as well. He's helping on the project. 
will will be bearing down to get it out before May, which is when our when our expected ship date is. Yep. We'll still have the book available for sale. I think the point of the Kickstarter is to make sure that we have enough funds to be able to do a print run because print runs are not usually made for, you know, a hundred copies. They're usually made for a couple of hundreds of copies. And so uh, it's enough for us to do a, a minimum print run and then we'll still be selling the book after that. But that still means that uh, it probably means that the book will be more expensive once the Kickstarter runs. This is essentially the early bird version pricing. So do go ahead and place your order through Kickstarter as long as it's possible, and then uh, we'll make it available on, on micromobility.io website as a, as a purchasable item. And of course, you don't have access to all the other things that we are making available through Kickstarter, including the, the dinner and the... Uh, ticket to uh, to a future micromobility event or the conversation you can have with us directly or what we haven't decided on the poster we might make a few posters available one more thing that's that's also available through the kickstarter project is a bundle between the book micromobility and also the original critical path which was printed oh in 2012 so it's been wow seven years. yeah it's been a while i had left over a, a couple of dozen copies i think over about 30 and um and they're sitting comfortably on my on my shelf in my home uh still shrink wrapped it's one of the classics horace it's a classic it's it, once they're gone they're gone you know so so we're making that available at a very, very nice discount. It's, it's, a, it's a book of its, of, you know, capturing the gestalt of the early 2010s and the, uh, the birth and rise to dominance of the iPhone. So it's the birth of the iPhone. <laughs> this, this iPhone thing, I think it's going to be a, a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Imagine, I mean, we were recording that in 2011. It was the beginning of the podcast Critical Path. And it wasn't clear at all in 2011 where, where that was going, right? I mean, we, although the iPhone launched in 2007, that was late 2007, eight and nine people weren't sure where it was going, especially with, uh, with Android coming right behind it. So uh, it was yeah. an interesting time. Or BlackBerry. That was actually one of the most fascinating things. I mean, by that stage, I kind of knew where the world was going, but I moved to the Middle East in the start of 2012, and everybody there used the BlackBerry, and they were like, oh, no, no, no. Every, I mean, we are going to use the BlackBerry through and through, and I, nobody else wants an iPhone. And I just, I was like, oh, yeah, you just wait and see. Well, I've been listening was, to this guy. Yeah, He's was... called Horace Didju. He's going to tell you. It's, <laughs> uh, it's, the world is changing. You just don't know it yet. And lo and behold, two, three years later, everybody had iPhones. Well, in many ways, what we're seeing now with micromobility is a similar phenomenon where maybe a bit earlier, I think what we're doing now is really describing the birth of cellular telephony more than we are about the iPhone in particular, or even smartphones. So we're at such an early stage that the, real, the true believers are simply people who are, are saying, hey, check out this phone thing. It's, it's really neat to have your own phone versus having to take a call in your home or office. And that idea of, of a portable cellular phone was, was a crazy idea at first, and very few people thought it would be mainstream. So throughout the 90s, it built, it built, and built. And by the late 90s, early 2000s, kind of the dominant players were, were visible and, and the industry structure was visible. But it took another seven years 
until 2007 for us to see what the next generation of phones would be, which would, would be these, the iPhone. And there was, a, in that seven-year period, a whole lot of experimentation going on. I think we're still quite early in micromobility where we're seeing the early days of personal on-demand mobility, right? So personal on-demand mobility, minimal mobility, you know, I call it micromobility, but it's this idea of having very small, lightweight vehicles that are not purchased, but they're quote-unquote shared. I, I prefer the word on-demand, but they're available without you having to buy them. And that that is what we're looking at here. And it's not a perfect analogy to the cellular world, but it is an interesting observation. So anyway, speaking of which... Yeah, I was going to say, well, that's a great lead-in to what we plan to talk about today, which is the, the micromobility FAQ, which you have yes. been... Uh, which we've been discussing on Twitter. Take us through why we need an FAQ and then what we're thinking about using it for. Right, so an FAQ is a list of frequently asked questions. And I thought of that because sometimes when I, when it's a complicated subject and then it's been out there for a while, it makes sense to maybe address it not in a narrative, not in a story, not in a long form version, but rather just what are the bullet points? What are the critical things you should know commonly frequently asked questions. I love that format. I love the idea of of putting the the list together. But one thing is, firstly, so that we have two conditions on being on the list. One, it has to be frequently asked questions. So this is is something that isn't uh, someone's particular question. Uh, You know, it might be, how do I set up a micromobility service, which, by the way, our sponsor helps you do. But more to do with uh, foundational questions. So this is foundational. What is it? How does it work? Second condition is that it has to not be answered elsewhere easily. So in other words, it has to be a question that is worthy to be on this list. That is, this is the reference question and answer for the foundational questions. So anyway, Brilliant. I think what we should do then, Horace, is if these have to be frequently asked, then they surely should have relatively short and concise answers. Well, hopefully they're short. I don't know how short they will be, but <laughs> we, we, we... Well, I, I, this, is, this is a good challenge for us. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think what we should do is maybe what I'll do is I'll just go through and start asking you questions and you can do a relatively short and concise answer. How do we... Well, how do we b- b- I'm not sure we have time. Firstly, the problem is, let's talk about the structure right now. I put forward, I started writing these down, and I had no particular order, but I started writing them down. I came up about 30. I was I was hoping, usually you when you have an FAQ, you kind of stop around 20. We got to 30, I got to 30 on my own, and we posted the list out to Twitter, and then we posted it also on Google Docs to let people add their own questions. And now we're at 54. So it's actually quite a long list. What I'd like to do the first time now that we're discussing this, it kind of go over the questions, but it, it might take a long time to answer them because 54 is a long list. Maybe we could just go through them and, and, and think through whether they're good or not, and then pick a few to answer. I don't know if we, how far we can okay. get. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's fine. Okay. Well, the first one there is what's micromobility? Right. So this is a simple question of the definition, but it's it's going to get ugly when we start to be nuanced about it. And sort of there's a technical definition and there's a sort of more, yes, but what does it mean definition? So yeah, hopefully we can, we can tighten and make that very clear. Again, I wrote a whole blog post on the definition. So uh, we'll see about that. 
yeah, there was a story behind the birth of the of the word and so on. So the question is, and how did the micromobility word come up? That is a good question. It might be worth putting it on the FAQ. How did you come up with this? Or what is the etymology of the word? But for now, it's not that. Well, I think, it, doesn't that, yeah, I was going to say, I think that's actually covered off in the next question, which is how is micromobility different? Is it a new idea? And I think actually that would probably cover that part off. Well, yeah, and, and that's, that's part of it. Is it different than motorcycles or, or, or is it different than other forms of mobility that may have, yeah, may have been put forward earlier? And so this comes up a lot. Is this really what's new about it? Because we've had motorcycles for a long time. We've had bicycles for a long time. We've even had scooters. Uh, so what is really different about this? What is car unbundling? The car unbundling, yeah, this is a big theme. And, and, and so in many ways, this has not necessarily to do with micromobility. It's more to do with, even in some cases, the long distance trips, the very long distance trips are actually already getting unbundled and being given to the airplane, which is which is what's been happening. So the great American road trips are becoming extinct. People aren't using their cars for vacation anymore. That's another part of that. But at the low end, the unbundling is going to happen, which is actually interesting that we've seen erosion at the high end before we've seen erosion at the low end. So that's one of the things there. Yeah. Well, I think also as well, what is car unbundling needs to explain what car bundling is in the first place, mm. which is, you know, that the idea that a car is a bundle of trips which you know, exactly what you realize for someone who's never worked that out but then you go oh wow yeah, yeah it is five thousand trips all in one go one purchase yeah yeah once you understand the bundle then you understand the unbundle but most people don't realize that it's a bundle to begin with yeah what are the enabling uh, technologies of micromobility this easy one of course we're gonna talk about some of the components that that make this happen technologically speaking and We've mentioned this on the show, the battery technologies, uh, cellular technologies, GPS, and so on. These are, these are pre pretty uh, easy to enumerate. Yeah, absolutely. And then you go through and you've got the motorcycles, bicycles, microcars, the light-speed neighborhood electric vehicles, etc. Right. Are, are all of those micromobility. So I assume what you're doing with that is to try and break those out and, and differentiate those from, as you said, how does this differ from what has come before, right? But in a sort of very specific... Right. But, but in particular, if you have these modes that are very old and, and pre-existing, what's so special about them being defined this way? And this is about really the inclusion of, of modes. In particular, I think motorcycles, over time, I remember in the beginning, I said the definition is three things. It's, it's the weight plus a utility, plus a motor, a motor in which and the reason for utility was more for excluding the motorcycle and the reason for motorization was to exclude the bicycle. But it turns out that, as, as we'll get into this a bit later, is that I decided not to include those secondary conditions in the core definition because I think they're moot. In other words, I don't think it'll be important to break out the inclusion of motorcycles and bicycles to me is, is it, it, I'm deciding to include them. And, and the reason is that as far as micromobility, I'll give you one hint, okay, which is what I'm working on, a piece about the motorcycle. Conceptually, I think this is just so interesting based on, on what you've been saying on Twitter. Do you want to just go into what you've been talking about on Twitter? Let me explain the motorcycle dilemma or the motorcycle anomaly. It's an anomaly because... 
here's a, a small vehicle, it's lightweight, it meets the criteria of micromobility on the technical side, but it isn't something that's shareable. And it's also something that's very dangerous because it works only alongside other cars. It doesn't have its own infrastructure. It only can only work within an infrastructure that's designed for armored vehicles. That means that here's an asymmetric situation where you have a, a lightly, very, very exposed uh, vehicle and, and rider uh, mixing it up with vehicles that are clearly uh, going to kill the occupant or the the kill the, uh, the the user at the slightest touch. I mean, it's not... Here's something that's got 250 horsepower. Hold on. <laughs> well, it's not even a horsepower because many motorcycles are quite powerful. And that's another, that's another mystery is that as part of the bargain of them being permitted on the same roadways, they end up having extremely high horsepower and in particular high horsepower to weight ratio so that those vehicles become some of the fastest vehicles on the road, which is another paradox. Here you have a, one of the least protective vehicle types. In fact, no protection whatsoever, except for the helmet of the wearer, with the capability of often being the fastest vehicle on the road. Uh, in fact, in, in some, um, uh, if you go online and try to search what are the, the tickets I think it was a, a list put together about the, the, someone in Texas or, or, or the police in Texas or the police in a part of Texas made a list of all the fastest top 20 speeding tickets that were issued in that county in Texas. Imagine, imagine just the, 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 the fastest speed. So it wasn't about motorcycles, but it was like, what were the fastest speeding tickets in Texas? And I think the limit was in 80s, 80 miles an hour. And so you had these vehicles going over 200 in, in, in the top 20. And guess what? Almost, I think, 15 at least of the top 20 were right. motorcycles. The fastest vehicle often is the motorcycle in, in, in that sense. But anyway, my point about this is, is that in many ways understanding the presence and the existence and the universal existence, the common nature of the motorcycle across the world. It's, it's, a, it's not illegal anywhere. It's legal everywhere. And yet it's dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. And in some ways, it's a paradox. Why is it permitted to exist? It seems as if the buyer or the user of a motorcycle has some kind of strange I wouldn't want to call it death wish, but they're like, they don't seem rational at all about the decision to use these types of machines. And yet, and yet, because it doesn't seem rational, and yet it's universal, there are many people who use them. And when they, you talk to them, they have a rationale for using them. But it's also a question about regulation and why are they permitted, even though you continuously improve the safety of the car, you add more and more requirements to the car, making it heavier and heavier in the process. A lot of the reason cars are heavy today is because they have more and more stringent safety requirements. And yet you do nothing of the kind to the motorcycle. And so it gets faster, perhaps, but no more safe. And the car gets certainly faster but more safe. And so there's some very bizarre situation here. And I, I've even said that if you can make an explanation of the motorcycle's existence, you've actually kind of cracked the whole puzzle of transportation theory or transportation policy theory, because it says more about how a society decides to permit 
a mode of transport than it does about the, the, the mode itself. So why does it permit this? Why is it allowing this to exist while at the same time turning the screws on another mode, which is the car? Why does the motorcycle get a free pass? Well, the answer is because its, its users take the risk onto themselves as opposed to, to being a menace to others. And now this is one of the paradoxes or, or maybe explanations underlying it, this whole story is the relationship between risk-taking on, on an individual basis and risk-taking on the society's part. And anyway, I, I, I'm not sure I've got it figured out. I'd, 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 li- yeah. I'd like to write it up. Well, it's just conceptually. So I remember you talking about it. It's like, if you imagine it happening now, like we've got these cars and we've had these cars and everything. And someone came along and said, you know, I've got this, uh, I've got this thing. It's a two wheeled vehicle and it's a motorbike and it goes really fast and it has no safety whatsoever. And people would just be like, you're bananas. Like, you're not going to put this thing on the road. Yeah, no, no, it would never be permitted. In fact, when you see a scooter as a new mode being introduced now, so then the electric scooter, it isn't something that's automatically legal. It is maybe in the United States, but it's not automatically legal in Germany. So new laws have to be written about it. And by default, it's illegal there. But then on top of that, what you're seeing is that it's being restricted. So if you add a motor to a bicycle, we are already seeing that that motor must be of a certain power, which is 250 watts typically, and it must not go beyond a certain speed, which is 25 kilometers per hour, unless there's a new step up from that called the S-Pedelec or uh, the, uh, the L1B-A or something like that. It's one of these designations I always forget the, the numbers for. But further upgrade to the e-bike is, is up to 45 kilometers an hour. And some people say, well, that's far too much and we should start to restrict that. But the motorcycle is unrestricted sure. and, and there's no limit to how much horsepower you can add to it. There's no limit to what speed it can go. And, and yet... You know, the only requirement is like, oh, you have to wear a helmet, which doesn't really help you, except maybe if you fall down from a height that you normally ride it at. So it's not it's not designed really to help you in a in a collision at anything like a speed you might go at. So anyway, the the point about motorcycles is that if you understand them deeply enough and, and understand the distinction between also them being used for utility or for recreation or, or what risks are being taken by whom and why is it permitted, it actually, to me, gives you hope in the sense that saying, if we permit motorcycles, we have to permit micromobility. It's like, oh yes, there's a licensing requirement, but it's not one that's too difficult to, to, to observe. You have, you have to sort of take a few more classes to get involved. But by the way, in Europe, the difficulty of obtaining a driver's license is going up and up and up. I don't know about the United States, but I know like, for example, in France, it's thousands and thousands of euros that you need to spend in order to obtain a driver's license. It's not at all trivial. In the US, it used to be very easy because you just, uh, you actually had the opportunity to learn as part of your high school curriculum so that the, uh, I know when I went to high school in the United States, we had driver's education as one of the classes you could take. And, And so by the end of the, you know, maybe junior year in high school, you had everything you needed to know to go get your driver's license or learner's permit, as it was the earliest version of that. Anyway, there's some interesting digging we can do into the question of sort of motorcycle mobility, which is why I think that it's it's an anomaly that actually lets you understand much more deeply what the logic of transportation is overall and, and why some modes 
are allowed to exist and as a result why I think micromobility will be allowed to exist. Yeah, so moving on. Mm. Yeah, what does it compete with? Because we've got transit walking or traditionally car, like cars, automobility, etc. as part of this FAQ. Right. So, so then, yeah, who's in, who's not in? And then we have this question about who does it compete with? And so those are obvious questions, I think very common. I think the next one's a good one. Oh, right. The uh, autonomous cars, won't that make all of this micromobility irrelevant? This is, well, I'm very interested in this, actually. Will it? <laughs> right. So, so this comes up as well very often. Um, people who say, well, look, we, we, we see a future for autonomous vehicles that will not only obsolete cars as we know them today, and it will be sort of just have on-demand pods that will take us everywhere, and we'll never actually need to own a car. So the autonomy promise is there's no more car ownership, and therefore there's also not going to be a, a lot of the constraints that lead us to micromobility, for example, the congestion issues, the parking issues, the the lack of space in cities, the safety concerns of big cars, all of these things go away because we have autonomy. So in some way, if we, if we solve the autonomy puzzle, then we get uh, all these uh, other problems solved as well. And, and I'd like to address that in, the, in, in this FAQ. Well, let's not get into the question. The answer is right now. Let's just go through the questions. Wow. Yeah, okay, sounds good. Uh, market potential for micromobility. That's similar to that total addressable market episode that we did earlier, I imagine. Yes. Um, but they're just thinking about where where that will come from and how big that is globally. And also as well, at some point, we'll be able to go back to your talk that you did at uh, Micromobility Summit. That will be released and, and people will be able to understand a bit more from your perspective about how big you think that overall market is globally. Mobility market for miles in general. Which companies will benefit from if micromobility uh, develops as a market? Yeah, so this will That's be... That's one we've talked about as well, yeah. Yeah, well, this is often comes up is like, where how do I put my money into this business? And and we get a lot of questions around that. And, and, and so we should definitely put that in there. Yep. Is micromobility likely to be a profitable business? Oh, well, interesting. I guess it depends on the players, right? Well, this is a good question because... It's a good question because, in fact, not all great technology and solutions uh, built on technology turn into profits. It's sometimes technologies are just there for maybe governments to deploy because it, it's it's a common good and and that's a good thing. Uh, the, the economic impact may be huge, but it may not be profitable to any any private entities that that uh, participate. So so I think it's an open question about the profit uh, uh, potential here because let's not forget profit is really excess value that's captured. There's plenty of value delivered, but the capture of value is a bit higher than what's delivered or at least it's possible to capture something out of the, the entire value delivered. And in transportation and many network businesses, actually, it's very difficult. And that's not just because there's great value, but there might be great competition as well, because it, it, that means that the pricing is not going to be very strong and, and it, it, gives, it, it essentially dissipates or distributes the value among too many participants and then you don't have... Uh, a lot of capture. So this is a common, I think, a foundational question about can you actually make money delivering a mass market solution for transportation, which I, I think there are a lot of skeptics out there who say that uh, 
you know, even if if micromobility is successful, it's not going to justify the types of, you know, valuations that are out there. Yeah, that's really interesting. There was one thing that came up just in the last couple of days, which is the Lyft uh, S1 was published about the, the IPO. So they were talking about what their metrics were like in the US and they said, obviously, I can't remember the exact numbers, but they're saying, look, it costs us this much to, to service a ride effectively to, to go and put together all the comops and the, the, all the back-end solutions and everything and the driver incentives and the driver recruitment and the rider recruitment um, to, to make a ride happen. And this is the revenue that we collect from each ride. And Travis Vanderson, who's the, the CEO of Bird, was responding to someone, I think it was Corey Weinberg, who's at the Wall Street Journal, but, oh sorry, the information, but had also been, um, at, he was at the Micromobility Summit. And Travis Vanderson said, look, those economics, like we collect that same amount of money for each trip as, uh, as what Lyft does, because obviously Lyft takes 25% of the overall trip. And then our cost of provision in terms of actually being able to service that trip is actually lower than that of Lyft. In fact, yeah, I think the story we, we should direct the listeners to is in Barron's, I believe, there was an analysis of this uh, filing where they even concluded without any input from Bird that Lyft's own, and I think Lyft was forced to make this uh, disclosure, that they obtain as much from their short micromobility trips, which, by the way, are through bike sharing, as they do from their car trips. And Barron's, Barron's made the observation, this is again the writer of Barron's, I forget it, I don't know his name, but, but he basically said, oh, you should, be, you should see this as a negative, that they, they make no more money from cars than they do from bikes. Well, I see it as a great positive. It shows that bikes are as profitable or as, in fact, perhaps even more profitable than, than car sharing. And what it comes down to is that with car sharing, you have to pay the driver. Whereas with the bike sharing, you get to keep all the money. So although the, the amount captured is much higher from the car, there's so much more cost that the gross margin on car trips is no better than the gross margin on bike trips. And, and so in, someone actually wrote to me uh, saying, well, see, your whole thesis now is proven because, or rather the thesis that the short miles are as valuable as the long miles Although I came at it completely differently by saying that uh, first there are more of them, and secondly there are uh, the short trips are going to get a, obtain a higher price per mile. And indeed, what you end up with is this perfect demonstration through the financial statements of Lyft that short miles are 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 as as good as long miles, and and or or micromobility miles are as good as car miles or or automobility. So anyway, yeah, this is why this is such an interesting topic we can dive into so much into the uh, profit models and and this is the thesis, the I guess the economic thesis of micromobility is that it stands uh not just as a junior partner in the um, in, in the mobility story with, uh, with the car as the senior partner, it actually stands shoulder to shoulder and in fact may eventually be bigger. Yeah, fascinating. Well, speaking of that revelation, maybe we should uh, bring in our, our sponsor, uh, Joyride. Absolutely. So thanks once again to Joyride for sponsoring us at the Micromobility Podcast. You know, there are countless ways that you can benefit and we talked about this earlier as far as participating in this and, and being an investor in micromobility 
one of the more interesting ones actually is to to actually operate your own micromobility service. And there are many, many folks out there who want to be just that, micromobility fleet operators. So if you are one of them, then you probably know you've got tons of things to do and you've probably figured out a lot of those things already. You know where to place the fleet, you know how to, uh, how to balance the fleet and you're thinking hard about the fleet size and so on. So you've done your research, you've read the blogs and the articles, you've listened to our podcast, you've downloaded lots of reports. And you've also heard about the entrance already in the market and how much in terms of capital they've been able to raise. But uh, you really want to focus in your own market. And by the way, we believe that there's 20,000 markets out there for micromobility. This is because the regional size of, uh, f- of deployments is such that there are many urban areas. And that's my current estimate anyway, at least 20,000 markets. So Joyride provides a solution for you to build your own micromobility fleet and operate it in your local market. They provide custom white-labeled mobile apps, a scalable backend, allows everyone from the small local operator to large transit agency to launch their own micromobility fleet within weeks. Plus, they have partnerships with all the major manufacturers, so you're guaranteed to have the highest quality hardware when you launch with your own bikes or scooters. So here's an example of one of Joyride's customers. The operator launched with a fleet of 200 electric scooters in their own hometown, and within two months they were making six figures from these rides, all the while competing within a city that already had some of the largest scooter share companies operating. This doesn't even include the additional revenue they're generating through the Joyride advertising platform that allows you to connect your customers with retail partners around the city. Maybe you don't think you could compete in the micromobility space. Maybe you thought the market was already controlled by a few giants. Well, Joyride levels the playing fields for new operators, allowing anyone to succeed with their fleet. Whether you're an independent operator with a desire to launch locally or a transit agency looking to solve the first and last mile for your customers, Joyride helps you find the mobile share solution that works. So start your own scooter or bike share system today. See more at www.joyride.city. That's joyride.city. And now is your chance to to join the global micromobility movement. Oh, by the way, if you mention the micromobility podcast, you will receive your first month free. So thank you to Joyride for supporting the micromobility podcast. All right, so here we go. We're going through the micromobility FAQ. So we've got how is money made in micromobility? What are the business models for micromobility? I think this is a very pertinent question, especially around this, um, just around, yeah, for investors or people who are, who are looking to uh, understand the space. That's actually going to be a long answer. I think today there are several options. I think we need to discuss the value chain of micromobility, I would say. The next question, by the way, is besides operators, which is one of the common themes in in kind of studying micromobility today, what are the other stakeholders, uh, cities, regulators, um, even law enforcement, you know, who are the people who will have to shoulder some of the burdens here? Mm, And stakeholders, yeah. And what's the impact of micromobility on the environment? Is it efficient? Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that's not commonly cited as kind of like this is the the purpose of micromobility is to save the planet. Uh, I think, you know, I often say that I think it's 
consequence of it. It's not what we intended to do, but it will it will actually cause that. But it, it need not be sold that way. And so anyway, that's an obvious question. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other part of that, and this is just, I'll just cite this for anybody who's interested, is that there's a group called Chester Energy, and they've, they've gone and done analysis on shared scooters, and they've, they've found in general that shared scooters have about 1% to 3% of the emissions profile of a, of a car in terms of vehicle miles traveled. So, Yeah, yeah, I would say two orders of magnitude more efficient. Yeah. So that seems consistent with their research. Yeah, inclement weather. Will that or the lack of infrastructure impede ability for micromobility to get adoption? Right. So now we get into the, the kind of what are the obstacles, whether it comes up, obviously, as the first thing. Cargo capacity, infrastructure, safety. So we're going to address those in you know, those next four questions. Then, so, so this is in the sense that, okay, so is this just, just a fad or is this something that just a few people will do, will this be impactful? And, and so that's what I wanted to address in that question with sort of the sub-question, aren't electric cars having more of an impact? Isn't really, should we have you know, put that much effort into this? Why not just, like with autonomy, aren't there alternatives to fixing the car rather than introducing something else? And I think that, you know, shouldn't we spend our energy in fixing cars? So that's, that's what I want to address here. Absolutely. How expensive will micromobility uh, be to implement for cities? I think that's a very relevant question. This figure you've given in the past is one-tenth the cost for the infrastructure, right, versus existing car or automobile infrastructure. Yeah, and I think what I want to get across here is the notion that actually micromobility isn't really about uh, asking for uh, another new deal type of, oh, we just need another few trillion dollars to make this happen. Rather, in fact, it's actually asking to spend less money and uh, it, it's uh, in some ways great innovations don't come and ask for more money. They actually ask people to spend less money. And especially low end disruptive innovations. The the story of computers is a classic one where the new computers, the personal computer, microcomputer, wasn't more expensive. It was cheaper. In the process of, however, getting millions and millions and billions of people to use them, we ended up with a lot more being used. And in some ways, the market for computing expanded greatly, but it didn't do so by, by sort of putting out a budget request. In some ways, it actually said, well, you, you actually need, need to spend less on the alternatives. So there's that. Um, we got to get into, into how, how that happens. So then we have, will micromobility travel be more expensive or cheaper? And that's kind of related to that question. Is it initially about saving money? And in fact, it may not be so. I think a lot of the early rides people will take uh, will seem somewhat costly, like basically taking a, a bus trip, which is maybe, or, or a subway trip, which is not that cheap compared to hopping in a car, but it's very convenient. And often the car is just not an option in some of these areas. So there's this question of creating creating demand. Again, citing back to the, the one that we had done on, I think it was the episode number six or seven, je ne sais quoi, you know, the certain something something, and also the Dutch cycle experimentation, but showing that the data of why people choose to cycle in Copenhagen and, and another, and another um, kind of bike-friendly or micromobility-friendly cities is because it's actually the fastest, most convenient way around. That's not necessarily the driver. It's not because it's cheaper or more expensive or anything. It's just, no, no, it's, it's all related to other variables that we wouldn't have thought about. 
at the moment, if your tool is that very blunt, thinking about how to get around, it's like, I only take that. It's either I take the car or it's a very, very inconvenient bus. Well, if I could show you something that's completely faster than all of those things, then maybe you'd be looking at it, um, regardless of cost. So actually, let me now address, so we have three questions I'm looking at the list now. Yeah, absolutely. That are, again, more skepticism and addressing objections. These are good questions. One is, the market for vehicles shows increasing demand for larger, more powerful, and longer ranges. This contradicts the micromobility positioning, smaller, less powerful, and shorter ranges. So isn't the market actually telling us to make more of the big and less of the small? And, and this, is, this is a very good question. Because in fact, when I started out and I proposed, hey, we should make, and this is before we had scooters, before we had e-bikes sharing, we, you know, I put it to some engineers and I put it to some uh, marketers and I put it to some business people that, or investors that, hey, uh, we should make these really tiny things. I said, well, look, all the data shows that people prefer big things. Why would you want to, uh, to go the, the exact opposite way? This is very common when you ask about the market that, that the data seems to indicate that consumers want more and uh, not, and you're offering less, and it seems contradictory. In fact, this is the second question. Historically, consumers have shown the preference for more comfort and less effort. It's not just the size and the power and the distance and the absolute just, just hugeness of all the vehicles they buy, but also the idea that they don't want to work at transportation. They want to sit in the most comfortable interior as possible. And, and this I get a lot from especially older audiences who say, I'm not going to get on a bike or I'm not going to get on a scooter you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to suggest that, or, or, or more commonly, it's actually Americans cannot do these things. They don't like bikes. It's somehow, they're, they're, they're somehow uh, allergic to <laughs> being active in taking uh, a, a, an active role in transportation. So, so this is something that needs to be addressed, and I hope to do so to give a good answer here. And next, this is more about the potential of the market, but as a short distance solution, isn't that a limited market? Because aren't long trips also important? This is actually an important question because although I focus on the short distance trips and I say this is really the, where the meat of the market is, I must necessarily also say that long distance trips are not irrelevant. They're not going to go away. They're going to be very important still going forward. And the, the user needs, the, the average person uh, needs to have a solution there. So in some ways, we need to still have cars, just like for computing, we still need the PC as, as, and yet we still carry phones with us, which are almost as, uh, you know, equivalent in power. And so it's interesting to see, in other words, this is going to ask the question, what about the sustaining side of transportation, which is the car? Is that not still relevant? I also think as well that that's really relevant around this idea of like going back to is the car itself being unbundled because I think that the, you know we've oftentimes talked about this as you know micromobility is is in some ways a revolution about the vehicle design but actually I think it's in many ways like a revolution around business model which is the thing that's really seen the biggest driver of adoption and the thing that we oftentimes talk about the most on this show has been the evolution of the sharing model and the fact that like yeah it's 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 actually taking this vehicle that until now the car has been a single purchase that you make for you know five years or 10 years or whatever it is to actually being no no you're going to break that out and you're going to purchase the thing that you need at the time 
uh, in a way that's been servitized. And so I, I think that that question, when people ask, oh, it's only a limited solution or it's a short-term solution, I'm actually going to present to the Ministry of Transport in New Zealand here about micromobility because they've, they've, they've been asking me the question, you know, when I've been talking to them, it's like, oh, but no, surely electric cars are the solution. Why are you talking about scooters? And it's like, well, you have to look at it in that framework, which is you guys are still thinking about this in the car ownership model, which is you see the adoption of electric cars coming by all of us, you know, effectively, everybody's just going to shift their purchasing habits from buying internal combustion cars to electric cars. And actually, I think the future of electric cars or the future of electric vehicles, I should say, is actually a jump bike rather than a Tesla Model Y. Well, when faced with that question, you're trying to really change their point of view. Uh, it's, it's, I find it, you know, it's not enough to just say, trust me, it's going to be this way. I think the way to do it, and this is the way I would answer that question, is by saying, look, we've changed our minds about so many things in the last 20, 30 years that were inconceivable into what we changed our minds to before we changed them, right? So, so we, and the example is the personal computer, right? That we, we, we ended up moving what we do with computers from big computers to very small computers to even tinier computers. And in doing so, we actually didn't necessarily stop using the bigger ones. So we ended up with, with a multiple computer model. And you can say the same thing about, you know, how you changed your consumption of communications. You used to have, you know, a, a, a phone and you did all your communications by making phone calls. And then you, you, you started using texting. That doesn't mean that you don't make phone calls anymore. You're doing, you're doing texting, and then you've started even doing other things, even simpler than texting, which is like hitting the like button. I mean, this is, this is like crazy that you think nowadays we communicate by, by retweeting, liking, you know, swiping, just a single action that's being used to sort of indicate your interest. And to have told someone 10 years ago that you're going to communicate with your loved ones and your business partners with emojis and with swipes and with, you know, f trivial flippant type of uh, activity that you do with your thumb, it would have <laughs> sounded ridiculous. Yeah. No, I'm, I mean, it's, it's literally gesturing. You're gesturing as a form of formal communication. And so it, it, it's not even that this is something only a few kids do. And they are Snapchatting or even things that I don't know what they do anymore. But this is mainstream adoption, and it happened very quickly. So in communications, we've changed the way we communicate. In computing, we've changed the way we compute or what we think computing is. And so why should transportation be different? Why should transportation not be susceptible to behavioral change? When you think about some core behaviors, I mean, there's nothing more foundational than how you communicate with one another. There's nothing more foundational about these interpersonal relationships. We think it's perfectly acceptable for a family to sit on the couch watching TV, but really looking at their phones at the same time, or more at their phones than they're on the, what's on the screen, or using phones inside of a restaurant. All these things, yes, we complain about them, but it's still very, very common. So how did we come to this? How did, The question ought to be, how did we allow change to happen 
even if it's undesirable. And in many cases, this is desirable because people feel like they have the world at their fingertips, that they have, that they have millions and millions of interactions uh, that they wouldn't have had otherwise. And so the arguments go back and forth. Is it better or worse? But the thing is that it changed. And it was, it was something that was put in their hands, the phone, that allowed that change to happen. So the question really for a planner is that you have to stop for a minute and ask whether behavior can change when it comes to transportation. And let's not forget that what you have today as your primary mode, which is getting into a car and getting somewhere, didn't exist to your, for your ancestors. So somehow, again, we've gone through the change of going around by walking or going around by trams to going around by cars. Why? Because a car was made available. And so you see the machine, once it's put available, and by the way, that wasn't just invented, it was made available, which means it was cheap and manufactured in huge quantities and available to you to purchase at a local dealer and serviced at a local service station. All of these things had to be built. And once they were built, well, here we are all of us having these machines, and now we ask, what is the cost? And so, is it too much to ask if you put forward a new machine that people will eventually say, yeah, I get it, I'm going to try it, and all these other things. Now, again, there are theories on how change happens. It's the S-curve, it's the adoption of technologies, the diffusion of technologies. These are have been studied academically in how people go from nobody doing it to everybody doing it. It happens. And that is the question in front of everybody now is that, yes, it may seem invisible to you now, but stop for a moment and understand that the world you live in was invisible to those who came before, right? So sure, there's a lot of faith here, but there's also a lot of, so much examples of it happening that if you have a sufficiently, you know, long lens in the his- in history, it's like you you you're shocked that that anything stays constant at all. Everything changes, and so it, it's it's not it's like you start to question what about human behavior isn't changeable. That's the classic uh, Amazon framing. I don't know what my customers want when, in ten years, but what's the stuff that I know that they won't change? What's the stuff that they're always going to continually want? Well, it's, you know, yeah, probably better service. You know, I mean, Amazon is a great, another great example. I mean, my feeble imagination can only think of things that I've personally experienced. So I've experienced the computer change and I've experienced the communication change. But yes, shopping change. I mean, that I haven't experienced very much because I don't shop very much. But people who, who are, you know, if you want to dig into the behavior change in shopping that used to go, well, it's time for everybody to pack up and go to the stores. Let's not forget, by the way, just a quick side note on retail. What we see as the kind of going to the mall didn't exist before the car. So we had to have the car in order to have the mall. And now that we have Amazon, we don't need the mall. We don't need the car for shopping. Then you go back further and say, well, what did people do before the car? Well, they went to department stores and they got there by the tram or the subway. And these were downtowns of big cities. And if they weren't downtown, then they, they got the things delivered to them from a catalog called the Sears Robot Catalog, and they had things shipped by railroad to their nearest train station, and they would go pick them up on the weekend. So th- these sort of behaviors that we ended up on how to how to obtain things from shopping were again enabled by technologies, whether it was rail or road or or train uh, or tram and so on. I think the most interesting part in all of that, though, is that people still went always for the cheaper thing, like they always wanted low prices. And which is why Sears, you know, succeeded. 
which is why then Walmart succeeded, which is why then Amazon has succeeded. Well, that's a pretty consistent thing that everybody wants is they want low prices. They want that to be efficiently delivered, you know? Oh, well, that's easy enough. All the, the great stories in retail have been about enabling the mass market to consume and to obtain objects economically and, 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 and to, do, to do it conveniently and economically. It used to be only kings could imagine the idea of having things delivered to them, and now everybody can. So it's, it's something that, to the point to be made is to planners and city people, is that there's nothing about human behavior that isn't changeable. There is nothing innate in the desire to travel by car. There's, that is not a, a human condition, universal, perpetual, and has always existed. In fact, it has v- existed and will exist for a fairly short period of time in history, which is probably, you know, 150 years or so. Anyway, continuing the questions now. Yes, absolutely. Well, we've got say, another five minutes or so. We've got two more questions here, which is how do we measure success for micromobility? And then what are the best examples of micromobility friendly cities or locations around the world? Yeah. So actually, those two came from people once I tweeted out the, uh, the, the FAQ and I was asking for more contributions. And those came from, out, from others. I think they're great questions. How do we measure success? And yes, I think the adoption curve is one of those uh, measurements. And then uh, examples. The thing is that we have a, another 20 plus questions here. And I'd like to be able to go through them and decide whether we're going to include them or not. So maybe best to stop now and we'll go through this additional 25 questions and sort of decide on them. I haven't read them yet myself and we have to make a decision. Let me just give a sample here. You know, I think this is a great question. How will micromobility affect parking? Does drone delivery account as micromobility? Well, you know, should we consider goods as well as people transport? Won't there always be a vandalism problem? How are maps going to be a part of micromobility? Is that going to be a big deal with Google Maps, for example? I like the question, what is the appropriate amount of land and where is it located that should be assigned to micromobility needs? Yes. I think that opens up a really, really valid question about sort of like, how do we allocate space on our existing road and yeah. infrastructure, et cetera? There's some which I might not think are worthy questions, although they're not necessarily bad ones, but will big oil allow micromobility to exist? I, I think this is kind of a difficult question to to answer because it presumes that this sort of big oil is is going to be somehow making decisions. I'll say this much. I've been approached by oil companies very interested in participating in micromobility. So I'm not I'm not convinced that they will will stand in the way. Rather, they might actually be very interested in in uh, making it happen. So yes, there are some great questions. Which micromobility modes may share the same Facilities, can we have multiple micromobility modes sharing facilities? I think that's a good question. Life cycles of vehicles. Impact on uh, environment, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I, I think that's, an, um, that's, that's our time up for, for this episode. But um, look, thank you, uh, everybody who has submitted, and, and please continue to submit. We'll both retreat this one out again so that you can have a chance to... Um, to ask questions about it and, and add in yours. We'll also do that as well. If you have any other questions that you would like for us to just answer on an episode um, at some point, by all means, just send them to us and we'll, we'll work out how to include them on a, on a future episode as well. Especially if it's not specific to this frequently asked questions and it's simply just like a little bit more of a pertinent question to, to that moment or, or whatever. 
All right. Well, thanks again. And don't forget to contribute to the Kickstarter project. Again, if by the time you hear this, the, the goal has been met, well, continue to pledge and get those orders in for the book because we want to print as many as we can. I know there's probably 10,000 people who listen to this podcast, so plenty of people could possibly use the book. So go get them. All right. Thanks so much, Horace. Mm-hmm.